Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 912. On this week's episode, we welcome Mitch Hanniger to the program. David Lorela talks to the Mariners outfielder about being excited to return to the team after injury. Hanniger discusses things like playing with Brent Suter in the minor leagues, the biggest batting practice power he's seen, and how modern players might fare against greats from past eras, including himself. Hanniger also shares some specific thoughts on reaction time at the plate. It's funny when you stand in on a bullpen, some guys would be like, act like you're going to swing, and then last second you say no. But when you decide to swing or not in a game, you do it before you can even think, really. It's just like reactionary. You're, you're hunting pitches, but it's almost like it, it's you don't have like you don't even have the time to say yes or no, if that makes sense. After that, Ben Clements and Eric Longenhagen have a discussion about the Philadelphia Phillies and their struggles in the field and on the farm. The club has some depth behind JT Realmuto at catcher, including a player Ben calls a, quote, Sestouli favorite, and Eric thinks someone should be dealt from that spot. But around the diamond, the Phillies have a number of defensive question marks, and Ben and Eric try to figure out some solutions while also having a little fun. I mean, I was just clipping Hoskins' defensive miscue after defensive miscue. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, if they make a baseball top shot... Like, could you imagine opening just, like, Reese Hoskin errors over and over again? And it's just like, oh, another one. This one's limited edition. Here's one where the ball goes directly through his legs. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you'd like to give back, consider checking out the Fangraphs.com store for some merch or donate links. We are also doing more regular streaming content over at twitch.tv slash Fangraphs Live. All of our broadcasts are free and archived for viewing anytime. So maybe go take a look. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Mitch Hanniger, outfielder for the Seattle Mariners. Mitch, you are back playing after missing a full season and a half with injuries. It must feel pretty good to be back in, uh, well, in sunny Arizona swinging a, a baseball bat. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's good to be back out there with my teammates playing, and yeah, I've been missing the competition, so it's fun to you know lace up the spikes again and get out there. And you are fully healthy, I hope? Yeah, feeling good. Super. So first question, Mitch, is hitting a little bit like riding a bicycle, or has the batter's box felt a little bit foreign this spring? No, it's felt pretty good so far. You know, I did a lot of work in the cage trying to make my training is game like as possible, you know, hitting off the Vivo machine and seeing a lot of breaking balls and trying to make the environment this off season as challenging as possible. Cause I think it would really set me up to get my timing back a lot faster. And I think it's paid off. I've been feeling good in the box and, you know, came out here a little early to stand in on some bullpens as well. So I think everything's been going well. And you hit a double the other day I saw off of Oliver Perez, the man with a thousand windups, maybe. Yeah. He's very deceptive. Yeah. He's been doing this a long time. Yeah, it's often said that hitting is timing and pitching is disrupting timing. Are guys like Oliver Perez or guys with really funky, you know, other funky windups, high leg kicks, are they different? Yeah, I mean, um, you said it. I mean, disrupting timing is um, a big part of pitching. And, you know, when guys can do that, it definitely adds another element to, um, you know, trying to get on time with their with their fastball and also with their off-speed stuff. So it can definitely make it more challenging. Yeah, who stands out in that respect? You know, I haven't faced uh, Marcus Stroman in a while, but I've been seeing some of his clips and what he can do with disrupting timing. And, I mean, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty um, – I think there's he's going to give some hitters some problems. 
I think that is a very safe thing to say. And, and you probably, hopefully, are going to give pitchers problems. We talked hitting, Fangrass talks hitting interview two years ago. I think it was maybe a month before you got injured in 2019. Has anything changed with your swinger approach since that time, even with the downtime you've had? Uh, not too much. Just, I would say, making sure my work is uh, just trying to hit the ball as hard as I can. And for me, that's that's more of on like a head high line drive. I think when I'm practicing with that kind of angle, it translates best, best for the games for me. I mean, there's a lot of guys that, you know, work on hitting the top of the cage. I just, I think that sometimes can create a swing that's a little underneath. And I also think that if you're a power guy, you should definitely work on driving the ball. I've just noticed for me personally that when I'm trying to, in my work, trying to hit hard line drives and kind of, for me, honestly, kind of stay off the top of the cage is I've, I've found that that translates best for my in-game results. A player that I talked to recently, I, I believe, referred to what, what you said at the outset there as, as spinning the pitcher's cap is his approach. Yeah, I like that. Definitely. Yeah, maybe you can use that yourself when somebody asks you what your approach is. Yeah. Some new lingo in the, uh, yeah, in the yeah. Hanager terminology. Yeah. Yeah, lest anyone forget, or maybe if people aren't aware of this, Mitch, you were a very productive hitter before getting hurt. I looked, and between the 2017 and 2018 seasons, your WRC Plus was 134, which is actually better than guys like Nolan Arenado you know, and Anthony Rizzo. Oh, wow. I don't know how I want you to respond to that. I guess I'm pumping your <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, no idea. I, I don't really understand some of the, the advanced analytics, especially the WRC. I don't understand that, but um, <laughs> that would be, might have to explain that to me on another day. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, well, no, I can do it now very easily. 100 is an average hitter. So okay. 134, you are 34% more productive than the average big league hitter over oh, those cool. two years. Cool. Which is very good. And then you got hurt. You know, and you've and you've been dealing with injuries. I guess we don't want to talk about that, but we can jump back a few years ago. I noticed that one of your career highlights would have been a five-hit game against the Angels in 2017. I happened to notice Mike Trout was 0 for five that night. So for just one game, you were better than the best player <laughs> in, in baseball. Yeah, I think that might be the only game Mike Trout has never got a hit against us or the only game he's never gotten multiple hits against the Mariners because I've been chasing or trying to chase down his balls for a couple of years and a lot of them end up over the fence. But um, I mean, what a fun player to play against. And it's pretty, uh, pretty cool to witness greatness. We just hopefully we see a lot more of those 0 for 5s when we're playing against them than the, the 3 for 5s with two home runs that we're used to. And I think it's pretty safe to say that he is the best player in baseball. Who would you rank right up there with or right behind Mike Trout? I think Mookie Betts is really, really good too. I mean, just just what he can do on the base pass. And he's got a great arm. He plays fantastic defense. He hits for average. He hits for power. You know, he can take over a game. I, I think I think they're he's neck and neck with Mike Trout. And this Tatis kid in San Diego, I think, has a chance to be pretty darn good too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What a gifted player. Yeah, Mitch, you were minor league teammates for a few years with a pitcher who didn't really profile as a big leaguer at all, who's gone on to prove people wrong, and that is Brent Suter. Do you mm -hmm. have any mem memories of of Brent? Yeah, I played with him in um, a little bit in 2013, a little bit in 2014, and I just remember in the Southern League in 14, 
he would just blow guys away and you know he's never been a guy with a lot of velocity but mm-hmm. he's very deceptive and he's very he has a little bit of funk to him and i just remember telling some of my teammates and some of the, even a couple coaches like this guy's going to pitch in the big leagues and you know sometimes when you see a guy in the minor leagues who doesn't really throw hard guys are like no you know this stuff isn't going to work against a major league hitter and i'm like yeah no i think it will like he he pounds the zone he's deceptive and you know, sure enough, he's he's in the big leagues and he's had a great career so far. And I know he's got a lot, a lot more years left. And um, I just remember, you know, he would throw when every every time he started for us in the Southern League, games were like I remember one time it was an hour and forty six minutes. I think we finished the nine inning game. He threw a complete game shutout. But yeah, what a fun guy to play behind. A Mark Burley game, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, 143. We don't see nearly enough of those. I mean, we no. all love baseball, but the, the 343s can uh, can grate a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. How similar, Mitch, are Suter and Marco Gonzalez? I would say very different, just with the arm angle. Suter's just like, from what I remember, is so over the top, and it really gets on you, and he's, he's a lot more long and lanky. Where Marco's more traditional arm angle, but just really pinpoint accuracy of where he wants to go and what he wants to do with the baseball. The way he changes speeds and also just, he's, I wouldn't call him a nibbler, but the way he can just paint the corners and run it inside and, and kind of just, you know, break some bats of some really powerful right handed hitters has been, has been fun to watch. So I guess we could call him a painter. A nibbler is somebody who can't paint, and a painter is somebody who doesn't have to nibble, maybe? Yeah, that's, that's, Good description. Yeah, that's that's two good ones in a row. I'll see if I can get a third <laughs> in, in our conversation. One thing I was going to ask you is if you were to get traded and end up pitching against the Mariners, which of your teammates would be the most challenging to hit against? Ooh, I think I think Kendall Graven would be tough because I haven't seen him in so long. And I remember him as a starter. He always had really good stuff as a starter. I remember there's just a lot of sync. And I know now he's throwing, you know, upper 90s. When he was starter, he was, I think, low 90s. So I would think that would be pretty tough at bat. So does not seeing a guy really factor in a lot? Does that make it a lot harder? Well, if, I mean, yeah. The more you see a guy, usually the better your eyes will get against him. You can, you know how his pitches move. I feel like your brain's like a computer. So it's picking up on things, even subconsciously that, you know, it's funny when you stand in on a bullpen, some guys would be like, act like you're going to swing. And then last second you say no, but when you decide to swing or not in a game, you do it before you can even think really. It's just like reactionary. You're, you're hunting pitches, but it's almost like it, it's, you don't have like, you don't even have the time to say yes or no, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And this may be a hard question to, to answer, but are there any pitchers that you faced that stand out as you walk back to the dugout, shaking your head, thinking, I don't know why I'm not hitting this guy. Or maybe your teammates will walk back and say the same thing. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's there. Yeah, there's a guy, there's a pitcher in particular, but it's not like I'm walking back saying, I can't believe I can't hit him. It's more of, I don't know what it is, but he's got my number. I faced Lance Lynn a couple different times and I can't seem to figure him out. I feel like he's on when, when we play against him. And for whatever reason, I don't see the ball well or, you know, yeah, he's uh, he's one of the guys that kind of scratches my head. I need to figure him out. Well, Lance Lynn is sneaky good. He throws. Oh, he's really off. good. He's a great pitcher. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. And he throws a lot of fastballs. So exactly. They're different fastballs. You know, he will move it. You know, he'll cut it. He'll sink it. Yeah. But you you sort of know the speed coming and guys really have trouble squaring him up. Yeah. Yeah. He's He's been trouble for me. Three word question. Electronic strike zone. I personally am not a fan. Why? Uh, I think it will ruin the catching position. 
I think you'll see guys who are great game callers, who are great framers, which is part of the game. And also, too, like the umpire, in my opinion, is part of the game. If this umpire likes to call low and away, well, you should know that in your scouting report and you should pound that and you try to exploit that. I think there is a, a human element to baseball that I think it makes a sport great. And I don't want to see that being taken away. And I also don't want to see pitchers just pitching to trip the zone as opposed to how the game's always been played. Yeah, I would. I'm really against the thought of electronic strike zone. Yeah, speaking of umpires, have you ever been tossed? I've never been tossed, no. Not yet? Not even in the minors? Not yet. No, not yet. Never my whole life. Yeah, let's jump back to uh, to teammates, Mitch. Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez have both been in the news recently, although not necessarily for good reasons, You know, that being the comments made by the team's now former CEO. Mm-hmm. But what are your early impressions of, of Kelnick, who I believe homered, we're talking on Wednesday, he homered earlier today. You know, and Julio Rodriguez. Kellick's a strong kid, works hard. I think he's going to be really good. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't had got to see them play a ton, you know, being I was hurt last spring training, so I didn't go to many games before we got shut down. And then I haven't seen Julio play much either, but I know he's got a big bat. And, um, you know, both, both young, exciting prospects that I'm looking forward to seeing play one day in Seattle. And, yeah, I'm excited. There's a lot of hype behind him, and I think – you know, we're always looking for, for more talent. No matter what team you're on, you're always looking for more guys to come in and help your team win. So we're looking forward to having them up there and at some point and helping us win. You have gotten an opportunity to see to see Kyle Lewis. Were you, I guess, maybe pleasantly surprised by just how good he was last year? I wouldn't say I was surprised. When he came up in 19 in September, he looked really good and he had a lot of power. And yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I was surprised, but I mean... It was great to see. He's a he's a fun player to watch. He's an exciting player to watch and, you know, a good hitter. He's a really good hitter. Yeah, speaking of power, Mitch, who has the best BP power uh, on the squad? Who really likes to bang them far and is good at it? Hmm. I don't know. With COVID, we've kind of all been taking BP on separate fields, kind of spreading out. So I haven't got to see all the guys take BP yet. So I can't. I don't know. I think that title is still yet to be claimed. What about over the course of your career with a few teams you've played with? Oh, Nelson Cruz. It's not even close. Yeah. Yeah. Nelson Cruz's batting practice is ridiculous. Hands down? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's change direction here. We have time for uh, to address a few more things, Mitch. A few years ago, Adam Adovito created maybe a little bit of a buzz by saying that he would strike out Babe Ruth every time. Does that sound feasible to you? Yeah, I think I, uh, I think he would. <laughs> well, just and I just think when you're comparing different eras of the game, even all sports, I think it's it's really hard to say. You know, this guy was better than you know this old timer, or but in, but in that regard, you know, I don't know if there's anybody who threw back then and had nearly as close to the stuff as Adam Ottavino. So just by way of competition and him having never seen that type of stuff before, I, I do think he would strike him out a lot. And also, like, if you even take a, a player now, you give Mike Trout, Babe Ruth's bat, he might strike out every time against Adam Adovino as well. You know, the game was completely different. Pitching was completely different. The strike zone was completely different back then. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's tough to compare, but I, I do. I would probably put my money on Adovino. Do you think we're starting to come close to maxing out of just how much better, how much more talented players can be, that human beings can be athletically? I think so, but um, it always seems like there's something new that you can improve on, and you know I think 
in the late nineties, I'm sure if we had this conversation, everyone would say, you know, Oh yeah, this is the best it's going to get. And you know, it's only continued to get better since then. Yeah. But in regards to pitch velocity, I mean, I think there, there has to be a max of like what the arm is able to throw. And I think you're there, you're getting close to seeing that. But I also think that a lot of teams are, you know, prioritizing velocity because it might be more exciting over a guy who can move and mix and, and just keep hitters off balance and gets that guys out. At the end of the day, the pitcher's job is to get the hitter out. It doesn't really matter how hard you throw or what pitches you have. But I think the game is trended towards much more velocity. Right. But a, a pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour is not necessarily a more effective pitcher than Marco Gonzalez. Exactly. So if Adam Ottavino could comfortably strike out Babe Ruth most of the time, how do you think you would fare against Walter Johnson or Lefty Grove? I'm putting you on the spot yet again. <laughs> I would have to see some video in the scouting report first, but I think I would do all right. I think I'd do pretty good if I was thrown in to that era. But also too, like I said, like, do I get to bring my bat with me? Cause I know the bats they use were logs, you know, a lot heavier, a lot longer. So some, some guys in today's game with, with a shorter swing and setup that might not work with one of those bigger bats. So it's, it's really tough to say, but I think I would do all right. Yeah. What size bat do you use? I use a 33 and three quarters and a 31 and a half ounce. And has, is that a long standing thing? Yeah. Probably five years now. And it's just what feels most comfortable to you, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So one last thing, Mitch, and we'll completely change direction here. I think we should at least touch on one of your favorite off-the-field activities. I, I believe that you have a dog. Yep, I have a boxer named Hazel. And what do you and Hazel like to do? Definitely like to go on some hikes and go to the beach. Yeah, my I would say my... Favorite off-season hobby is going down to the beach and letting her run around. And we have a redwood park right next to our, our where we live, so I'll take her down and go on a little hike through Nicene Marks. It's in San, it's in Aptos, California, and uh, yeah, let her run around. She's full of energy, so got to find ways to let her get her exercise in. Yeah, how old is she? She's three. Three, so she has a, a ways to go. Yeah, is uh, probably more stamina than a thirty-year-old upfielder. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> great mitch great chatting and hopefully you have a good healthy season in front of you thank you i appreciate it thanks for having me on okay thanks mitch once again i am david Lorla, and that was mitch hanniger and thank you for listening to fangrass audio Hi, I'm Ben Clemens, and today I'm going to be joined by Eric Longenhagen, a native of Pennsylvania, to talk about the Phillies and both their prospect, I don't know, thinness, their prospect system in general, and their defensive ineptitude. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I It's like the most gorgeous time of year here in Arizona, which also means that my allergies make it feel as though there's an ice pick being inserted into my temples. <laughs> You know, upsides, downsides. I'm curious if you can you tell from having listened to me talk during like the course of our uh, friendship and coworkership that I'm from Eastern Pennsylvania, or do I have what you would recognize as non-regional diction? Pretty close to non-regional. Okay, I think I can generally tell that you are from the East Coast somewhere. Yeah, I there's. Where I'm from specifically, Catasauqua, Pennsylvania, is like equidistant between. New York City and Philadelphia. And so everyone I grew up with talks like me. The older I get, the the closer to that mid-Atlantic accent I feel like is coming out of 
my mouth, but I do have family members who are just like, you know, Eric, you're in Arizona. Can you keep track of the Flyers at all? Do you still follow the Flyers? Do you think that Carter Hart's the answer in in, in goal, Eric? That's what my some of my family sounds like. They and they live like ninety miles south of where I grew up, and that's how they sound, and this is how I sound. So yeah, we're gonna yeah. talk about the Phillies today. That uh, that generic accent is interesting to me. Like, I think I kind of have it too. I don't, I don't know if you'd guess that I'm from Tennessee. Nope, no idea. Totally non-regional. There's a guy named Eric Singer for maybe it's for Variety magazine or or one of those. If folks YouTube him. He's got a whole bunch of videos about uh, regional accents in the United States, and they're really, really cool. Uh, he's a linguist, and I, I nerd out on, on that type of stuff. Like, there's, a, there's an island off the coast of North Carolina called Rococoke Island that has, uh, like, there are only a couple hundred people who live there, and they have their own accent. Uh-huh. And there, there are all sorts of different, you know, there are, like, dozens of, of North American accents that are different in their own way. And so I'm fascinated by that stuff. But yeah, most of my relatives sound like, not maybe not most of them, but a lot of them sound like this. Yeah, what did you think the trade return for Carson once, Eric? <laughs> That's how they sound. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the Phillies infield defense. And let's let's start by talking about the, the ways that you and I, just by the nature of our specific jobs, differ in the way we're evaluating Defense. So, what was the what was the methodology you used to parse through how poor the Phillies' uh, infield defense was last year? So, I was less interested in numerically how poor they were because look, they're poor. I, I don't think you need anyone to tell you that they've been bad for a while, and more in wondering kind of what happened, like why why they weren't converting enough batted balls into outs. It's all well and good to say, ah, well, they just don't have anyone with range, but what does that actually look like? And I think that's a very hard thing to see, you know, while watching games, because it's very hard to understand the lack of defense in a single viewing. So I thought that kind of bulking it all up and looking at the places on the diamond where they were worst at converting batted balls into outs and the places they were best and how that varies as compared to the rest of the major leagues would be interesting. And then so... For me, and this has sort of started to shift as defensive positioning across baseball has started to improve. And like, not that to disagree with like this type of methodology where it's, hey, on average, how many ground balls or playable uh, balls in play on the infield, how many of them turn into outs at a baseline level across baseball, and then how many are turned into outs by this specific team? Like, I do think that that's. Uh, an interesting and viable way of evaluating team defense. And then the way that that differs specifically from what I'm used to doing when I go to the field to evaluate an individual defender. And obviously, like, it's hard because if you go to a game or even if you sit on an entire minor league series or, uh, you know, college weekend series or whatever, there's no guarantee that you're going to see any balls hit and play toward any of the the infield defenders, let alone enough of them to know that they can make quote unquote all the plays like all right let's someone please hit a, a ball to the into the five six hole so I can see the shortstop backhand one please and then someone put one like a little chopper on the infield grass so I can see what it looks like when they're coming in on a ball please like it can't right. guarantee that that's going to happen so <laughs> could you show him short hopped medium hopped can you right. show him long hopped yeah but at the same time even if like functionally the way that you're looking at it is in a binary way does an out get made or not? 
and then for me, like yesterday, just watching a bunch of the prospects play in spring training games, I forget, maybe it was Jonathan India, or no, it was Matt Theis, was making a play at third base, and he converted the out, but while he did that, you know, he had trouble getting the ball out of his glove, uh, he didn't really have a great grip on the baseball as he threw it, it's the type of thing that if I see it on TV or if I see it during the game, a guy double clutch or whatever, I'm noting that. So while the out was made, there was still something that went on in there that would be an indicator to me that, oh, maybe this guy's hands or his actions or whatever the specific weird thing is aren't that great. And of course, watching infield before the games, if a team's going to take it, uh, is a great way to see all those, you know, all of the plays, even though the defenders are like have an anticipation of what is coming because there's a certain sequence that occurs when uh, a team is taking infield. So, all right, so the Phillies, we Reese Hoskins is just not a good defensive player. They tried him in left field early on. That was bad. Then now at first base, he's also not very good. Gene Segura, as he has aged, uh, has lost a lot of range. You know, although he was never a very good defensive shortstop, that's especially true now at whatever infield spot he's at. D.D. Gregorius yeah. is also up there in age. Alec Bohm is a first baseman masquerading as a third baseman as well. So, yeah, I don't I don't know what the answer is here. They they rule five Kyle Holder, who was an excellent defensive player, and then traded him. They have Jonathan Guzman on the roster, uh, and like in the upper minors, who's another really good defensive infielder but can't hit, actually can't hit so much that he's not even on the Phillies prospect list. So what do you think is a potential solution here? Like, what does this team do? Are they, you know, roster CJ Chatham as well now? Like, what what do you do if you're a team like this uh, to try to hide this? I mean, the main thing that's going to fix them is the DH, right? Because I honestly don't even think Bohm at third base is that much of a disaster. Not a disaster. He's just They're, not they have to position him, like, he doesn't have range. So they have to position him closer to the line. And that's fine. Like, he doesn't really have the range to make the plays ranging to his left that a good defensive third baseman would. And so you, you can kind of see that in the data. He's not getting the stuff to his left. And so Gregorius has to shade over that way a little bit, just anyway, because they're to make the overlaps work. And that's a problem because he doesn't have good range. But that's a, that's small potatoes. There are, there are plenty of major league teams with worse shortstop third base situations than that. The real issue is that doing that means Segura's already stretched because he needs to help out Gregorius. And then Hoskins then has to do too much, and he just can't. He's, I mean, I was just clipping Hoskins' defensive miscue after defensive miscue. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, if they make a baseball top shot, like, could you imagine opening just, like, Reese Hoskins errors over and over again? And it's just like, oh, another one. This one's limited edition. Here's one where the ball goes directly through his legs. There, there's just so many different ways that he fails to convert batted balls hit at him into outs and it's it's kind of alarming to watch first base defense like that you know there's a little bit of a tell him wash but uh <laughs> I, i'm just surprised at his ineptitude there and I, I think if they could somehow fix like basically get hoskins to dh then i think a lot of this would clear up yeah i think that there is a late inning alignment it may be a certain on certain days there's there's a defensive alignment here where Scott Kingery's playing second base and Roman Quinn is in center field and that's probably your best defensive alignment. You know, I thought when Kingery was in college, I thought that he was going to be like a 70 grade uh, defensive second baseman. I don't think that that's true anymore, but I, I do still think he's plus there. And obviously like Didi's actions around the bag, his ability to turn the, the baseball around and send it toward first base 
that that's really good. It's just about the 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 range thing there that's deficient. Yeah. So I think having Kingery and Didi up the middle in the later innings when you're trying to prevent runs, putting Roman Quinn, who can absolutely fly in center field situationally, is your best defensive alignment. Like Kingery's defensive versatility allows for situations like this to occur. And then I think things are, are, are quite a bit better. Uh, the other guys on the 40-man are C.J. Chatham from the Red Sox. Again, a lot of injuries there, but a pretty good multi-positional player. Certainly capable defensively at short. Uh, has played all over the infield in the minors. And even got a little bit of run in the outfield corners during the 2019 Fall League. Uh, just because a bunch of the dudes from his teammates from Peoria like went home early and they didn't have enough guys the last week of the year. Uh, that was kind of a, a mess, but um, he was out there. And, um, you know, Chatham, I don't know if he's going to break camp uh, with the big club. They signed Brad Miller for a reason. I love Brad Miller as a, as a lefty stick uh, coming off the bench. And, again, like starting situationally, there are probably some days where rather than uh, Gene Segura playing, uh, maybe even some days rather than Bohm playing, although I, I'd like start Bohm every chance I got. Well, one thing they can also do is uh, sit Hoskins, although – I guess the handedness is confusing. For his rest, move Bohm to first and put Miller at third. And that right. that punches them up a lot. At late innings, too, they could uh, you know, move Segura over to play third base and move Bohm to first. I think that's... like I haven't watched a lot of Alec Bohm playing first. I have the sense that he's going to be a lot better than Hoskins defensively. It's like the way I would describe it is that Bohm is like less athletic Chris Bryant. So, uh, like, that's what the body looks like. He's got, when you're built like that and your legs are that long, on the infield, part of what's important about your ability to change directions and approach baseballs is, like, the cadence of your footwork. And it's just harder for guys with super-duper long legs like that, A, to bend, right? You got to bend at the hips. You got to bend at the waist simultaneously to do a lot of this stuff uh, at an exceptional level. You watch Matt Chapman do that. looks like he's sitting, like his his hamstrings are parallel to the ground a lot of the time when he's making plays because he's bending uh, so deeply at the knees. And like Bohm just can't do that. And his strides are just longer. It's hard for, for him to make uh, plays at third base the way some of the other like smaller guys do. And that's just less of a problem at at first base when you know you just got to pick up the ball and then run over there yeah i mean just watching him play third he looks more fluid in his motions not fluid but more fluid than hoskins does yeah and yeah, so hoskins is a bad defensive player yeah that, he, he has his you know strong points and they're just not fielding i think he's a kind of a classic dh only kind of guy long term and it does help that uh you can often give one of bohm or hoskins the day off uh, against righties and just bring in Miller. So right. I think that's going to clean up their defense decently. Kingery, like you said, is going to clean up their defense decently. But I, I just think it's very interesting that you can kind of see how the way they line up their defense puts stress in different places because of kind of a cascade of limited defenders. Like, I just don't think it would look so bad if they had one more plus defender. You know, I agree with you. And then what about the pitching staff? Like how much of... Guys like Zach Eflin having like an above average ground ball rate is almost detrimental to the rest of to the way they play defense. Like you kind of get away with this more if you've got someone who's striking out a third of hitters and you know gives up more fly balls. It's almost 
maybe beneficial here. I guess that's, yeah. You say that their outfield defense was terrible, too. <laughs> I, I would almost be more worried about their outfield defense. I didn't have a clever way to show a picture of that, and so I, I didn't really address mm. it. But I guess you're hoping McCutcheon recovers well. What do you I think of Kingery in center? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen enough Kingery in center field to have a great idea of how good he is out there. I was just so frustrated watching him swing at everything last year uh, that that's what's sticking out in my mind's eye. You know, like, again, Roman Quinn can really go get it. McCutcheon's 34. I don't I don't think it, you, you want to anticipate a bounce back there. And, like, Harper's okay. Harper does the, you know, Phillies fans are, will be familiar with this. Like, Harper's the Burl version of right field where there's crazy arm strength that makes up for some of the other stuff that is only okay or, you know, in Burl's case, not very good. So Yeah, if you strip out the year where he was just so focused on not getting hurt that he... I don't know, like never got above a jog and never dove. He's actually been a pretty decent defensive yeah. outfielder for his career. I, I'm not worried about Harper. He's the one spot in their, honestly, I guess for El Mudo too, but aside from that, in their entire yeah, defensive good. alignment where it's just, yeah, this works. And then as far as like the prospects are concerned, the prospect list just came up on the site this week. The guys who are on the 40-man slash big league ready include a former first overall pick, Mickey Moniak, who... At this point, is in fourth outfielder territory. And when I say that, I don't mean like there are three starting outfielders and he's the guy on the bench. I mean, like, there's utility for this guy. He's a lefty stick. His instincts in center field and just in the outfield in general are, are pretty good, even though he's not like a burner. He can play all three outfield spots. So he's competing for reps with Adam Hastley, who you know, was a top 10 pick, also is in this, you know, 45 future value area as a fourth outfielder type guy there's not great roster fit for these for these types of dudes like McCutcheon's right-handed and not good defensively Kingery we talked about like he should be playing all over the place but Roman Quinn is just the best defensive player so when we're talking about late inning moves uh, where you want your best glove in center field neither Moniak nor Hazley is that guy so just one of them can really, you know, be rostered on the bench. Uh, and then they have offensive redundancy off the bench with Miller, who's just a better hitter than both of, both of them. Right. So it's hard to know which of those two. They can only roster one of Hastley or Moniak. You've got Simon Muziati on the 40-man now as well, a 22-year-old with really great feel for contact. Uh, but again, lefty stick, not a lot of power. Like, uh, all these guys are, are kind of redundant at this point. Uh, so I think that with... Dave Dombrowski at the helm, that uh, one of these guys, at least, if not two of them, is likely to be dealt. Odubel Herrera is still around. Travis Jankowski is around. Matt Joyce is around. Those guys are all NRIs. Uh, so there's a lot of redundancy here. I, I think that, especially considering who the GM is now, that the Phillies maybe make a trade or several pretty soon. The other guy on the 40-man who's, who's a prospect is Nick Maton who was like a small school shortstop. He was a little bit older for college draftee even at the time. But he's got an interesting skill set. He walks a bunch. He can hit velocity. Uh, he hits the ball in the air a ton. This would be like a Sestouli favorite were he not already sort of an interesting prospect. He's an okay middle infield defender. So he might play a role. You know, He's in that CJ Chatham sort of area, but again... Brad Miller yeah. just hits better than these guys. You can also so, imagine, though, a pretty decent defensive outfield. Quinn in center, whichever of Hazley or Moniak you're carrying in left, Kingery's moved into the infield for defense. That That's a fine defensive outfield. 
Yeah, I agree with you. How real do you think Andrew Knapp's 2020 is? I mean, I don't. You good know, default like, is no, not. But I think that he's not a 133 WRC plus hitter. He's certainly not a 280 average guy. <laughs> That's just, right. uh, I don't know if you've seen Andrew Knapp. Not that he's, you know, like particularly slow afoot, but he's a catcher. I guess it's just like, is between having, you know, Real Muto's locked in, he's your catcher for the next long while. Nap's 29. He's got three option years left still, just because he's basically been up every year since 2017. He walks a bunch. He's a switch hitter. And then you've got Rafael Marchon, who you wrote about last year, coming up behind him. I like Marchon more long term, but I imagine other teams do too. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about a Sestouli favorite, a guy who yeah. never strikes out and also never hits a home run. That's uh, that's like a classic uh, fringe five type dude. So if you're keeping, if you're keeping one of these two guys, if you're the Phillies and, and trading the other, who who do you think you're inclined to move? Nap. I I think. When you have someone like Marshawn, it's a lot easier to imagine them becoming like a very valuable catcher. And the one thing that would kind of give me pause is that you have Real Muto long enough that maybe you should just go for a present day upside in your backup catcher. But I think Marshawn is just good enough that you can't you can't do that. You can't say, eh, I'm going to bank on the present value, trade away Marshawn now. Now, if you're getting like a, a really incredible return for him, I guess I changed my mind, but... I think that accumulating catching prospects like that tends to pay off. And I believe his defense like plays, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, Marchon is... I compared him to like a hockey goalie who gives up longer rebounds uh, in his prospect blurb. The ball blocking stuff is is only okay. He is really athletic. He's only 21. And, you know, catching big league stuff at the alt site and then in the big leagues for a little bit last year is quite a leap to ask a guy like that to make. Yeah. I know that two spring trainings ago that he looked really good in this regard, that Joe Girardi really liked him, but he's only okay. You know, he was doing a mix of catching on one knee and and in a traditional crouch in 2020, and the mobility and the ball blocking suffer when he's on one knee. Some of the guys are are better at mitigating that, uh, and I, it is one of the criticisms of catching on one knee that you kind of lose that mobility. I think that as, as guys become more comfortable with doing it throughout their minor league career, that you'll see that start to, um, to wane. There won't be such a fall off there in, in ball blocking ability when you're on one knee as, as guys just do it from an earlier age uh, right. and then throughout the course of their development. So that's subject to change. So I, I love Marchon. He's one of those like personal cheese ball type guys. Cause he is one of these like super athletic, short levered catchers, Great feel for contact, almost impossible to beat with velocity. He's going to sneak up on uh, some fastballs in on his hands and, you know, rip them inside the right field foul pole at Citizens Bank Park. And, he, like, I wanted to 50 him at points during the offseason process here, but there's just not enough power, like, throughout the hitting zone f- for me to do that when, you know, Alejandro Kirk and Gabriel Moreno, Moreno and some of these other guys have that. Uh, and our 50 future value types, but I do like Marchon long-term as a piece. There's just no way, like, he's almost wasted as a backup. I, it's almost yeah, like... that's the downside. Right. What Oakland did with Jonah Heim, where they traded him as part of the package for Elvis Andrews, just because cashing him in for someone who's going to play every day makes more sense than him yeah. being on the bench behind Sean Murphy. So I mean, I, I guess the thing you could do is just keep both, right? No, like, I... I <laughs> 
here's part of the problem is I like Rodolfo Duran too. Like Rodolfo Duran, who's not on the 40 man. Like I like him enough as a workman, like 40 man catcher. They've got Christian Betancourt. They've got Jeff Mathis. Like I like their, their catching depth enough that I do think that they should just pick one of Knapp and march on to move in a deal to help the pitching staff, which was terrible last year, especially in the bullpen. So I, I would move one of those. I'd pick one of them to, to move. Uh, if I'm Dombrowski. But um, let's talk about the pitching staff for a second here because it was Wait. terrible last year. Before we do that, I have one hot take on Marshawn. All right. So if I use the uh, the like semi-rigorous peripheral prospects model I looked at for Prospects Week, and I tell it that both Marshawn and Nolan Gorman play third base, it thinks that Marshawn has a better chance of sticking in the majors than Gorman. Very interesting. That's uh, That's partially because Gorman has skills that He's so good at them that you can imagine him building other things, and he just hasn't done it with the statistics yet. He strikes out a ton. But yeah. I find that, like, I think Marshawn's statistical profile is just really good. And the fact that he plays catcher is, you know, just so much bonus on that. So that, that's kind of what I got. I'm very high on Marshawn, I think. Yeah, and you wrote a thing last year about him homering for the first time in his pro career in a big league game, which people should <laughs> Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, so the Phillies bullpen... Hector Neris, they added Archie Bradley, they added Jose Alvarado, good luck with that. Connor Brogdon and Jojo Romero are two young relievers who I dig. Chase Anderson is a bounce-back candidate. Man, he's 33 now, wow. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Tony Watson, Brandon Kinsler are other older veterans. Neftali Feliz, huh? Right, they've brought in a bunch of like the sexy names from 10 years ago. So it's Neftali (laughs) Feliz, Michael Enoa, Hector Rondon. So, Eric, this won't work for you, but Dylan, you're here in the background. How old do you think Neftali Feliz is? I thought you were going to ask me about Michael Yanoa, which is a name that I've heard. Neftali Feliz, my guess is uh, he was a baby. Let's say 32. Wow, exactly right. I can't believe he's still so young. <laughs> but, like, obviously you asked in a trick question context because, yeah, he was a baby. But uh, in Neftali Feliz years, yeah, he's ancient. And how about Enoa? Do you want to try to no-scope Enoa's age? Oh my goodness. No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> Would you guess over over or under Feliz? Over. I think he's older, but he was even babier. Uh, my guess is he's 34. 29. Good <sighs> grief. What? Yep. Yeah. Michael Eno is still 29. So it's interesting what the Phillies did here, right? Like if you have to sort of duct tape together a bullpen, this is kind of the way I guess I'd go about it, right? It's They still have some interesting potential bulk guys in the mix, you know, in that Ryan Yarbrough, Josh Fleming type of Rays role. So while I think, you know, Neris is fine, I think Archie Bradley will be fine, although he has been up and down over the last couple of years too. Jose Alvarado is a roller coaster ride. I like Connor Brogdon and Jojo Romero to play foundational roles, even though they have option years left. I bet that they both just stick the whole year. No idea what Anderson or David Hale or Brandon Kinsler, who doesn't strike anybody out, uh, or Tony Watson are going to give you. But I do like, you know, Adonis Medina and Ranger Suarez give you an interesting mid-innings look. Uh, Ramon Rosso kind of does too, although I don't like how his fastball cuts, runs into barrels. Mauricio Lovera, who's 25 now, um, at one point was a nasty-ass relief prospect, like 93 to 96 with a plus changeup and slider. Got hurt. Stuff hasn't been the same. Then you've got the other young prospect arms who are on the come up. So like Bailey Falter had a velocity spike last fall. 
uh, has other interesting fastball traits. Uh, deception. Francisco Morales is 21, but has to be on the 40-man because of when he signed. He might be the Francisco Rodriguez type, like, hey, let's bring this young kid up. He throws smoke, plus-plus slider, mid to upper 90s. Like, let's just put him in the bullpen and do this now. Maybe there's, an, there's a, a universe where that's what's done with him. And then there are all these other, like, flyer types, like you mentioned, Enoa, Neftali Feliz. Actually, let me look up. I think I've got something somewhere about how hard these guys were throwing. Like, basically, these guys th- looked okay in the Dominican Winter League. Right. And so now here they and are. you figure one might shake out. Maybe two if they're lucky. Right, yeah. Like, they've done enough of these. Hector Rondon, Neftali Feliz, Michael Enoa. Uh, let's see. Who else is sort of in this mix? Yeah, Julian Garcia is another guy. He's 26. He's got crazy fastball vertical movement. Um, almost a perfectly north-south delivery. David Paulino is another one who was an interesting prospect for a while there with Houston. Then was like a 40-man equilibrium trade to Toronto and then just kind of flamed out. And so now he's around. Yeah, I don't know. I I can see them being an average bullpen this year. We actually project them to be dead average, 15th in the majors. And it's going to be in bulk, right? Like, just think about how many people we just named. <laughs> right. It's, it's definitely not a top-heavy like, I don't even think Archie Bradley's that good. I just think it's going to be interesting to see how many guys have option years left. Most of the prospects I mentioned do. Damon Jones is another one lefty with power stuff, but uh, like 30 command. So like Brian Mitchell, David Paulino, Ivan Nova, Enoa, Feliz, Rondon, they don't have the options left, so they might get scooped on waivers. Yeah. It's not a particularly flexible bullpen. That's That's true. And I think that's going to be a problem this year in a year where like, everyone's going to need that because of the workload upticks. All right, so Neftali I have sitting 90 to 95 in the Dominican Winter League. Let me see if I can get Enoa. I think they were both with Aguilas. Oh, in this uh, in this vein, one nice thing about Alvarado is that he does have options remaining, and also he'll probably miss half the season. <laughs> Just I'm not sure with what, but he seems to get injured a lot. Yeah, that's one where it was interesting. They made a three-way trade with Tampa, the Dodgers, where like a overachieving first base prospect went from the Dodgers to the Rays. Alvarado went from the Rays to the Phillies. And then the Phillies traded Garrett Clevenger to the Dodgers. It was interesting that the Dodgers just didn't want Alvarado back rather than Clevenger. And so when I wrote up that deal for the site and I asked people in baseball, like, and this is like maybe my bias, but it's like, Hey, how come the Rays and the Dodgers don't want this guy with hellacious stuff? Someone was like, oh, Garrett Clevenger should have been throwing his breaking stuff much more often than he seems to be for the Phillies. Um, and that we think there's room for like the Dodgers or somebody else to rework his pitch mix and that he'd be better than he was for the Phillies. So that was uh, an interesting deal to watch there to see how that works out. But So that means that it's not necessarily a, a health issue, which is good. Right. So much as a Phillies are bad at using their own pieces issue, which is bad for different reasons. Yeah, the Phillies development stuff is... I don't know. I don't know what to think of it yet. You can't point to Alec Bohm as a Phillies hitting developmental success story. The guy was the third overall pick in the draft. Like, he's just good. It's not like that he was turned into a good player by their developmental group. Um, Oh, yeah. Totally agree. Still kind of waiting to see exactly what, you know, it's, it's more like Mickey Moe and some of these other guys who... 
you know, I mean, and Mickey Mo was was one one, so maybe he shouldn't count either. But, but yeah, like we're still kind of waiting to see. I think how this new Phillies developmental group on the hitting side, led by Jason Ochart, who comes from Driveline, uh, to see how that stuff actually uh, pans out. So yeah, all right. Well, if you had to t- pick the order of the NL East right now, and obviously, like, let me just preface, folks by saying that we'll have predictions on the site before opening day and they are subject to change. But if you had to order the NL East right now, Ben, uh, before we split, how would you line up the clubs? Oh, I, I think I would put the Mets first. That's It's close with the Braves. I think it's kind of a, a lot of projection systems like the Mets. The Braves have like players who are more capable of taking leaps. Like... The Braves have five or six guys who could take a real step forward this year. And I think that makes me like them more than protection systems do. So I'd say that the Mets in a coin toss over the Braves, the Nats are kind of in stalking distance. Phillies are behind them and the Marlins are behind them. I'll take the Braves and then I'll take the Nationals. Like I just think that, and like this is kind of a doofy, you know, woo-woo thing, but the Nationals find a way. I still just think the Mets are, are going to Mets. That weird stuff happens there, and I'll believe that weird stuff will continue to happen there until it doesn't. I don't know if James McCann is going to be what he was last year in perpetuity. I love Dom Smith and think that he's for real, but I think that Pete Alonso is more what he was last year than what he was two years ago. Francisco Lindor, if I could you know, pick someone on the planet to be like my younger brother, other than my actual younger brother, it's <laughs> it would probably be him. But like... You know, Nimmo and Conforto and some of these guys either get hurt or are streaky. And I don't know how much I trust this pitching staff. Like, Sundergaard to stay healthy, uh, Carrasco to stay healthy. But, man, like, yeah, like looking at <laughs> Edwin Diaz to be really good. But, yeah, they are loaded. But I'm still going to take the Nationals. Like, until until they are – I guess last year they were no longer really the Nationals. But, like, I still just think – their mix yeah. of catching. I mean, if they hit health correctly, they're just a juggernaut. That's that's kind of always been their issue is that they have a lot of top-end talent and then kind of figuring out the stuff behind it is really hard. And they've been able to to do that. Like, I think Starlin Castro rakes. I don't know about Josh Bell, but we'll see how that works out. And Carter Keyboom kind of start, is starting to scare me too. But I think Juan Soto and Trey Turner are potential MVP candidates. And then the top of their rotation is vicious. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that they'll, I think they're going to find a way. So that's how I would stack it. I'd go Atlanta, the Washington and the Mets, I think are close, but I'll take them in that order. And then Philly and Miami, who I also think are pretty close. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking about the the Phillies with me, Ben. Yeah, Uh, it was fun. We'll see how um, how it shakes out and they'll do, uh, you know, Tom McCarthy and the booth and rest in peace, Harry the K. And we'll go to Chickies and Pete's and get some crab fries and some beers. And we'll go and make sure we'll drink some water. And then maybe the Phillies will make the postseason. But I don't know about it. I don't know. (laughs) All right, man. Talk to you later. This was fun. See ya. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, you should let somebody know. Tell a pal about Fangraphs Audio and help spread the word. We will be back with another episode next week. Have a good weekend.